0: This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is "Burning Questions, Not People." Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. Distefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Welcome to Faith for the Rest of Us. I'm Brandon Robertson. This is a podcast where I cultivate conversations with some of the leading voices in spirituality, philosophy, and religion in order to help those who are deconstructing reconstruct a faith that works for them in the modern world. Today I'm chatting with my friend Nadia Boltzweber, a Lutheran pastor, a New York Times bestselling author, and somebody who's really been helpful to so many folks in the deconstruction world help find new grounding for their faith. In this conversation, we explore what it looks like to live in authentic faith in a post-pandemic world. I hope you're inspired by Nadia's insights and wisdom. Nadia, it's so good to have you. Thank you for being with us.
1: Yeah, nice to be with you guys.
0: Yeah. I think the biggest question that I just kind of want to start off to help shape the conversation is the world has been changing so much in the past five, six, seven years. but your own kind of ministry and public presence and um, space in the world as uh, a minister has really been evolving uh, from starting House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver to having the experience of writing three incredible New York Times bestselling books to being now called and ordained as the first uh, ELCA um, minister for, I think it's public ministry is what it is called. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wonder how you, if you can talk a little about what this journey has looked like and how your own sense of vocation and faith and spirituality and all of those things have kind of expanded and evolved over the past mm-hmm. many years.
1: Huh? Um, yeah, there it's weird. I feel like to look at the, my career, it's such a mishmash of happened by accident. Didn't mean for it to happen to like, Intentionally putting everything I had into trying to make it happen. So it's always sort of both of these things. And um, what what I mean is like I never meant to be a writer. Like I never aspired to be a writer. I had to figure out how to write to do my first book because I had a contract. <laughs> do you know? Like I didn't. It was not. Uh, there's so much about my career that I didn't. It wasn't a matter of like manifestation or or. I didn't vision board it like with my girlfriends on the first day of the year. It wasn't, there's a lot of that right now. You know, there's a lot of inspirational sort of influencers out there, you know, cheering people on to becoming whatever it is they're wanting to become. And I'm, I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not my story with um, how this stuff happened, especially around writing and speaking. So Literally, I wrote my first book, which was a very small book that I think up to four or five dozen people have read called Salvation on the Small Screen, where I just watched 24 consecutive hours of bad Christian television and wrote about it. Now, Mm -hmm. it wasn't even my idea. The Episcopal Publishing House came to me because I had started a blog in seminary. And the purpose of the blog was going, okay, I'm learning all this dense theological stuff But in order for me to understand it, I have to be able to put it into my own vernacular. I have to have my own sort of language and imagery around retelling this stuff in order for me to understand it. And then I ended up getting there were people who would like to read the blog. So the Episcopal Publishing House comes to me and they're like, hey, we have this idea. We want somebody who is theologically minded and funny to write You know, a book about twenty-four hours of Christian television, and I was like, "Oh, um, are you going to pay me?" And they said, "Yeah." And it was very little money, I'll just say. But we needed a new furnace. Like my family of four lived on thirty-five thousand dollars a year in Denver, and we needed. I was in seminary. We needed for sure needed a new furnace, and we're like, we don't know where this money's coming from. So literally, I wrote my first book because I needed a furnace so like now i know that's not the most noble reason to write a book but literally it's the one i had at the moment (laughs) then then um once that happened people a few people read it and then suddenly i was asked to come and speak places like emerging church conferences because i was starting house for all centers and saints at the time and um and I, I, was like, why, why do they want to hear from me? It was kind of, um, I didn't understand it. But I was like, okay, this is fun. And I met some cool people, and then I kept getting invited to speak, and then I kept getting invited to write. And so, um, there, so much of that was really handed to me. I mean, it was, it was a matter of people going, hey, you should do this, and me being like, oh, okay. So like, that's not an inspiring, like, story of a career, but it's like, what happened. However, uh, I will say it does not take long when that happens for your ego to go, Ooh, yummy. Like it doesn't take long when you're getting that kind of attention. You're being asked to be on stage and write books and people want you to interview you and stuff. It is, it takes like 45 minutes like at first you're like, oh me, why? I don't get it. And then like 45 minutes later, you're like, why wasn't I invited to this thing? I mean, it's the the human ego is so powerful, and so I've had to struggle with it my whole the whole time. There have been a couple things that I did put everything I had into making happen, and one was starting House for All Sinners and Saints for sure. I have a formidable will and a certain amount of personal charisma and I'm a pretty good communicator and I poured all my creativity all everything I had into starting the church. I worked 60 70 hours a week. I'd coffee with everyone in Denver like twice. I I did everything I could think of to try and start the church and I experienced a lot of burnout a because of that and b Um, there was some collateral damage because I was like single-minded. It was all I could think of. And so I don't ever want to put that cape on again. You know, there was a period, the first like maybe two years, three years maybe, where um, I wasn't seeking other people's counsel as much as I should have. And then eventually I became so horrified at how blinded I was by my ambition to start this church that I became really collaborative in my decision making after that
0: yeah no totally I resonate with so much what you're saying and I kind of I want to pick up on one point you kind of touched on but so in this moment of the pandemic there's been a lot of us for instance even myself uh, I was pastoring a community in San Diego and there's something about doing religion as a career and something about what it requires of you Mm -hmm. that I've seen so many clergy kind of step back after the pandemic and say I need to reassess whether this kind of ministry is what I need to be doing and I certainly why
1: why are they doing that you think
0: yeah that's that's kind of what I'm wondering I know for me I mean there were a number of different things I feel like the silence Mm -hmm. of COVID getting to step back in some senses um which was a privilege to be able to do Mm -hmm. gave me some space to think about like the big existential questions about what do I really believe like standing up every Sunday, I need to make sure that I'm in an authentic place, but also just how hard it is to, um, be a religious person professionally where, I mean, all pastors know this people have a lot of projection onto what a religious leader is in the same way that just any public person gets projection on special way. Um, So I just feel like I mean,
1: well, public. Then, if, then if you're a religious leader who's also a public figure, my that's why my my first bishop was like, "Hey, Nadia, do you know why we wear those little white squares here?" And I go, "Why?" He goes, "So people can project their home movies on it."
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Yeah. And so, in like this new role that you're in, and as you're thinking about like your future, continuing yeah. obviously a religious and public figure, like how do you process and deal with the pressure of that and not burn up again?
1: Yeah. I mean, the one thing when I get off track in terms of ambition or ego or, um, or feeling malaise about like, things aren't going the way I want or in the time I want or whatever, I try to remember that, um, honest to God. And I'm not saying this as like a form of low self-esteem. I only do one thing really well. Okay. I'm clever enough to have, that's preaching. I've, I've been clever enough to parlay that one thing into books and lectures and, you know, a podcast, like literally every other thing I've done, but it really comes down to the fact that I'm just a preacher. And, um, so when I can kind of go to that and go, how am I being true to that part of who I am? Like that calling that I have to be a preacher, then um, I can be open to what is wanting to happen. I can kind of f- be in the flow of that rather than it being like my ego and ambition too much. And when it, anything else that doesn't sort of fall into that, I call dancing with the stars. <laughs> like like every, <laughs> everything else is like, not mine to do and and so if I can if I'm doing stuff or things are coming my way that allow me to talk about grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and all of the stuff that I'm obsessed with because I'm in desperate need of it like if I can remain in touch with my own need for those things and then talk about them in ways that I that 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 matter for me and then that's helpful for other people if i can still do that i'm good like if if i'm not doing that i need to change vocations not pretend i'm doing it you know
0: yeah totally i think that's just a good word for people in any season of life or in any kind of career vocational path it's and it's so hard though like to figure out what that one thing is and obviously you've you touched on it a little bit but I'll ask like how did you arrive at preaching um you had because you have a background at, in comedy a bit and like yeah. how did preaching become the thing for you
1: well I I didn't know it was gonna be I mean I was I was I did in the 90s I did I was a stand-up comic and then um I don't know how anybody manages to be a preacher without having been a comic first. Like for me, it just made sense. But um, but when I went to seminary, it it was this thing that I was sort of scared of. But then when I gave myself over to it, it was pretty... I mean, I I, like I was invited to preach at the festival of homiletics just a couple years into my career, so it was clear this was my thing, you know. And it's funny because I was (laughs) so—I had forgotten about this. I was so influenced by like the emerging church guys and the like alt worship movement in the UK, where they, um, you know, the sermon was definitely decentralized. They were like, "No, we'll do some creative group thing," or you know, "It's not all about the pastor." All this stuff. And so the first couple times we did a liturgy at house for all I did like during the word part of the liturgy, I did that like different kind of engagement. And then once I said, okay, I'm going to just reflect for like six minutes on the text. Right. And after that, people were like, Nadia, we want you to preach sermons like that, please. That's what we want. You're the pastor. You don't have to do this thing. And so I started in a way, the people of house for all sinners and saints made me into the preacher I am in a lot of ways, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not to keep going on this tangent too long, but I, I'm really compelled because again, as a pastor, and I, and I want to talk about your kind of digital church experience that you're having right now called the chapel as well. Um, we just, I started doing an experimental kind of online thing and have been wrestling with why people want a sermon. Like for me, like there's a thing about TED talks obviously wildly popular there's something about having somebody who's inspirational and funny be able to talk about the big things of life but what is it about preaching do you think that people actually connect with why in most church environments doesn't the kind of emergent church decentralize the sermon thing why doesn't that pan out i wonder if you have any thoughts huh.
1: about that. i don't know i mean there's a lot of bad preaching I mean, there's, you know, I mean, let's be honest. So, um, but I think that, that the form, the technology of having one person in a community that's set aside to do a particular type of struggle and study and, and contemplative life on behalf of the whole, and then to come back and for them to have a moment to then orate, that's unchanged. That's a form of technology that has existed throughout probably human history. And so I think because of that, because it's somewhat unchanged, there is something just deeply human about that, about having a person set aside to do a particular kind of type of contemplative work and then to have this moment of oration around it so um i mean we also go to like storytelling um and uh drama and things like that so i think human beings are kind of wired for it yeah
0: totally that makes sense and one of the things that has always fascinated about me about you is um that despite having kind of you're known as being edgy and all of those things and yet you're remarkably orthodox in a lot of ways um and I've heard you um, talk about before, and it's a line I've used so many times since hearing you say it, about um, how in a church, there's everybody in the church might believe a different part of the creed. You don't have to believe it all, but there's enough faith in the room when people believe different parts for us to be able to hold this creed all together. Um, right, and right. We're in this moment where deconstruction is a word that a lot of us are using, a lot of people are identifying as X evangelical, X whatever, um, sure there's yeah just a lot of cynicism about kind of the orthodox christian faith as the whole that it's been packaged as of course what keeps you connected into that world like why do you still find it compelling and uh, compelling enough to want to dedicate your life
1: to do ministry through it that's a really good question i first of all i i I am also uh, somebody who has gone through deconstruction. It was just a long time ago. I'm 50, I'll be 53 in April, but, and I let, I was raised in the church of Christ and that's all I knew. We went to church three times a week. Um, Then there were Bible studies and devotionals at our house. I mean, I was completely ensconced in it. And when I sort of, when I became a teenager, it's actually, it's actually the gays fault because when I became, (laughs) when I went to high school, I was such I was such, um, I was so alienated, um, from everybody because I was very sick as a kid and I had this disfiguring, um, disease that, uh, affected the way I looked and it couldn't be corrected till I was, uh, the bones in my face stopped growing. So I, I just experienced a lot of alienation and I was just this weird kid and, um, nobody seemed to, I, I mean, I really was a loner and I, I never had a group of people who really it sounds pathetic wanted me around. And until I went to high school and I met the gay theater boys and they were the first human beings who were like, you're fabulous. They thought I was hilarious because I had this wicked sense of humor. And I could, in a very searing way, talk shit about all the, all the popular kids in a way that they loved. And so, um, the, but I, since I'd been taught what I'd been taught was it's wrong to be gay. It's a sin. You shouldn't associate with sinners. You know, all of that stuff I was taught. Here's what I was taught was true. Now here's what I'm experiencing to be true. I'm experiencing this in my life, in my body, in my heart. And I'm going, what do I do? Do I ignore the truth of what I'm experiencing or do I discard what I was told was true? And for me, for, for, we're going to have different answers to that like we are depending on what our disposition or our personality is we're going to re- respond differently in that situation for me it was easy for me i was like oh well fuck them you know? <laughs> like i was like, uh uh-uh. like it was very clear and and a couple other things happened in the in the congregation around gender and race uh, when i was seven, 16 17 that made me go i'm out and so then i spent 10 years outside of Christianity, not just going, it's not for me, actively hating it. There was no ex-evangelical community. Nobody was deconstructing around me. Nobody in my scene had a Christian background. I was on my own and I was so angry. And so when I got sober, you know, the 12 steps has so much stuff about God and prayer. And it allowed me this entry point back into faith that wasn't about religion and i saw the way in in which it was impacting me and other people in the rooms of aa and that sort of opened me up to the idea of oh there might be other forms of christianity so when i met my ex-husband who was a lutheran seminary student he was we were talking about social justice and he goes well my heart for social justice is rooted in my christian faith and I looked at him i'm like What are you like a unicorn? What the hell is that? What some mythical combination of creatures that doesn't exist in reality, I had never heard of this. And I'd been an activist that whole time. I'd gotten arrested. I, you know, poured myself into this stuff. And so for somebody to sit there and go, these things are, are one thing to me. I was fascinated. And I always loved Jesus. I still had a little picture of him. I carried around, like it was still part of who I was, And um, and so to learn that there was this whole beautiful articulation of the Christian story um, that involved good news for the poor and that was really centered on grace and not being a good person and, you know, and it really took mercy and forgiveness and compassion, seriously, it was like all the good things I wanted Christianity to be about and none of the kind of bullshit that it was about. That's where I was like, oh, that then I felt more at home because there's a particular kind of alienation when we are alienated from our symbol system. It's a very recent idea in human history that you can choose your symbol system. That, that idea is like 10 minutes old. So it encodes in us in a way that when we, for reasons of self preservation, have to walk away from it, there is a grief and an alienation and anger that's very particular. And so, but for me to come back to the symbol system without all of the you know, stuff around it was 10 times more liberating than it was to leave it to begin with but it was a long time it was a long process and so for me the reason i'm st- i still have skin in the game is i think that that like the story of jesus is just the most true thing i've ever heard in my life and it continues to knock me on my ass and it continues to bring me back to life and back to my a, a sort of revived sense of my own humanity and others' humanity. I mean, all of that, I, I, um, it, it still hands over the goods to me. Yeah. So,
0: Yeah, and on that similar path, I mean, you kind of give us a little glimpse into becoming Lutheran, um, but you're also like very, very Lutheran in the sense that a lot yeah. of your, you you articulate reform theology uh, in, in very new and fresh ways that like, Mm -hmm. for instance, progressives, we like to be very much against the idea of original sin. People hate St. Augustine. We don't like talking about that. But when you articulate the ideas of original sin and grace and all of those things, you you have a different perspective than I'm hearing from, uh, that people would hear from most other Lutheran pastors. Like Mm -hmm. what led you on that journey? What gave you the-
1: I actually believe it. I mean, it's not, it's not like, here are the things I'm supposed to say because I learned them in seminary. I, I actually believe this shit. So it, um, it, it, and the reason I still believe it, it fucks with me so much. That's why. It, it, over and over and over again, it's the only place that I find actual hope and renewal. Whereas the world is constantly giving packaging hope and renewal in the form of self improvement, or or of um, self care, or any any other type of thing that I'm like I don't think it that's never worked for me, and so. I I don't know how to say it other than like, I actually believe this stuff to be true. Um, But not to the point that I think that, um, that I have any investment in other people believing it's true. I don't care. I am, I have no course in that race, Uh, but I, am really, uh, I believe that the wisdom that is contained in Christian thought It can be helpful, nourishing, and life giving for all kinds of people who will never intellectually assent to the same theological propositions I happen to believe. I do not think that we have to, this has to be a package deal and it's all or nothing. That's why my brilliant friend, Kerlin Richter, says basically what people like she and i are doing is like sneaking into the cathedral looking around for the most beautiful valuable things hauling them into the front yard and slapping a free sign on them
0: yeah i love that mm-hmm. i love that seriously and and kind of on that idea of taking stuff out of the cathedral i mean another part of this whole package of what's happening in this moment is not only are people deconstructing but even when people are reconstructing and kind of falling in love with a new version of Christian faith again, there's still a lot of fear about going back into religious institutions because of how messed up they have traditionally been for a lot of people. Sure. Um, and so there's a big question I want to ask on like that about like, if you're talking to folks who are like, hey, I'm with you, love Jesus, love Christian mm-hmm. thought, don't want to have anything to do with the church. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you say to them? And I kind of want to tie that with this experiment gathering that you're doing called the chapel and like this digital space that you've created. So,
1: well, you know, my thinking on that has really changed. You know, I used to have the sort of standard new pastor just got out of seminary arrogance of, well, you got to be in a community, man. It's all about community. You know, you got to be around other people around a table. And, you know, I know, you know, I mean, and not, not that that's wrong, but the pandemic has hastened the decline of the church. Let's just be honest. And I, um, the institution is the thing that a lot of people have been hurt by, you know, that the, the, the need for the institution to preserve itself is such a strong force. And maybe when it, the its own demise is a bit hastened, I I I'm actually super hopeful about the church <laughs> right now yeah. more more than I was maybe before the pandemic not not the preservation of every congregation that existed before the pandemic but I think that the basic idea of Christianity and the basic practices of Christianity people who are compelled by the story of Jesus marking the year in a certain way together that's kind of countercultural and breaking bread telling, talking about the night Jesus was betrayed by his faltering friends and having bread and wine and saying it's for forgiveness, it's for you, man. That's going to happen um, when even if the church loses all of its parachurch organizations, its camps are closed. It it doesn't have a big pension fund anymore. It doesn't own any more property. It, like all, like all of that is gone. I I do think this thing isn't going away. The thing that it actually is about. So I think that will keep going.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it's been remarkably um, resistant to forces that have been against it in the past, but I think the other thing with the pandemic that you're talking about, it hastened the decline of the church and I, <laughs> it forced us through, uh, I always remember Phyllis Tickle's kind of 500 year uh, reformation idea, every 500 years um, society and the church goes through a major reformation. And I don't, she didn't get, she wasn't here to see what the pandemic did, but I think she was spot on in her prediction, yet again, that we've gone through a digital reformation that is, I think, as big as the printing press in the past two years, that mm-hmm. has made every religious community need to go online, every religious community need to rethink what it means to be community, uh, if they were going to survive during the pandemic and exist during the pandemic. Um, and Again, I mean, I pastored a traditional church in a virtual way, now have a virtual community. Um, do you think that is the virtual kind of gathering of Christians? Will that be a replacement into the future? Or do you think it's going to be, um, yeah, I'll leave that there.
1: No, No, I'm not a person to ask about the future. I never have an answer. I just don't really, I don't. Uh, I don't know. God, who knows? I'm not clever in that way. Um, But it's funny because I think that the pandemic brought into stark contrast um, the importance of two very different but related things. It showed us how incredibly important it is to be able to connect when we can't be in the same room with other people. And it showed us how important it is to be in the same room as other people. (laughs) Both things, right? Like they don't replace each other. Um, and they're both important, so I think there are people who are like, "We could just do it all online. Screw it! Right? We'll just do our whole lives like this." And I'm an introvert and a bit of a hermit, so I'm part. Of, part of me is like, "Yeah," but it's not the really healthy part of me, if I'm honest, <laughs> and so. Um, and so then there are people who are like, this is only temporary and we're going to get back to being just in person. And that's what it really is, you know? And I think we're, we're going to see a lot of hybridization, I guess, you know, going forward. One does not replace the other. It just doesn't. And they're yeah. both important.
0: Yeah. In the digital spaces you've been able to cultivate and be a part of, has they don't replace one another, but has that... I guess I'm really interested because I've been consistently on the end of creating digital services during this pandemic that I don't have a lot of experience. And I, I, and I know you're on the same side. I wonder if the digital spaces for spirituality and religion that are being created, um, are fulfilling the same kind of spiritual needs. Like what, what is it that is that we are actually missing out on when we're not in person? Like there's complex questions there, right?
1: Well, a huge part of my own, uh, like experience of spiritual ecstasy is singing acapella four part harmony hymns with other people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it makes my spirit sore. I, I, I never, I never believe in Jesus as strongly as when I'm singing a hymn with other people. <laughs> like, it's a huge, huge part of my faith. You, that you can't do that really online. So, yeah. um, that's you can't do that, you know, I think actually having somebody hand me a real chunk of bread and wine is really important to me that I'm not that I, because actually in, in Lutheran just technically in Lutheran um, Eucharistic theology and our liturgical theology, our understanding, if you go to an Episcopal service and a Lutheran service, a lot of similarities in the liturgy, but there are these there are certain things that are different. And it has to do with a direct address to the people in several situations. So when you're given the bread and wine, when you receive, the person in a Lutheran church will say, like we say, body, uh, child of God, body of Christ given for you. It's like, it's for you. Uh, the blood of Christ shed for you. You are receiving you. It's for you and like in an episcopal church they'd say body of christ bread of heaven cup of church uh, of christ blood of christ cup of salvation lovely description is it for me i fucking hope it's for me i need it to be for me right now not just a lovely description of what it is so there's this direct address that's really important and i think that you know that kind of eye contact with a person receiving the physical stuff Christianity is physical. There's a physicality to it, like there's a priest who said it's not spiritual; it's physical. You can't even get started without a, a loaf of bread, a jug of wine, and a river. You know, so I, the, the that's what sacraments are. They're they're promises in the Word of God contained in things that we get our bodies interact with, and so that that's not unimportant to me.
0: Totally, I love that. That's so beautiful, and. Based on, so I loved your description earlier, that you really believe this stuff, right? That, that in a, there's a lived experience to the Christian faith in your story and your journey that makes it so real. And I think that's what also makes your preaching so powerful and writing. And a couple of weeks ago, you wrote um, In The Corners, which um, is a, a newsletter that you send out about, I think the quote was, our drug of choice in this moment is our desire to know who we're better than. Yeah. And That's another thing that has I feel like been there all along, but the pandemic seems to have sped up in many ways our polarization our division, not just politically but different groups of people are against each other. um, Especially in the digital space of social media, I think I kind of just want you to talk about that idea a little bit I I, for those who might not have read it um, what does your understanding of the Christian faith and this moment that we're in say to this polarization and this um, proclivity to want to judge and condemn people for making mistakes and this whole idea of canceling yeah. good sides and bad sides, right? Like, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, I uh, my, my understanding of the Christian faith deeply problematizes that. Yeah. So, um, I this is why I started the podcast the confessional like we find out something that somebody did some a mistake they made something they had an opinion of in the past, even though it's changed, you dig up an old tweet, you put it in front of them. You say, this is who you are. You know, I mean, Luther said it's, it's the devil, but not God who digs through your garbage looking for already forgiven sins to dangle in front of you and stuff in your nose and go, this is who you are. You know? <laughs> so, but now we, we don't need the devil. We fucking do that to ourselves and to each other. Right. So um that, there is a, the way that it problematizes that instinct, the, um, the, 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 the podcast is that I said, what if I had a space in the podcasting world where the invitation was come and tell me the worst thing you've ever done? The thing that you feel some shame about that, um, that you still have, that still has some weight to you in terms of remorse. And I will, if you, if you offer me this. I will exchange it for um, room for it to breathe. I'll ask compassionate and curious questions and then I will give offer you a blessing. I will write a blessing for you. And so it was my antidote to cancel culture in a sense. And at no point did I go, it's okay you did that, you know <laughs> or there was no, you didn't do any harm. No, 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 we dug into the harm. We so I think, this need in us to know who we're better than, it gives you this dopamine hit, you know, to be able to go, Oh, that thing they said is wrong. Look how much, look look how much we're getting out of the fact that I could be mistaken. So it's okay to correct me if I am, but I think there was one school district in Tennessee who banned some books, right? (laughs) Think of how much, We have gotten out of that. Oh my God, we feel so much better than them. We know why they're wrong. I mean, are you kidding? We love it. When I was on, when I was on speaking to her before the pandemic, people would be like, "How do you? Do you have any during the Q and A? Do you have any advice for like? I just I'm I I'm really having a hard time loving my neighbor. These they're uh, Trump supporters. I just hate them so much. I just I and I don't want to, but I do. And I'm like, oh, you don't hate them. Come on, you're gra- you're grateful for them. They get to carry all of our xenophobia for us because they're worse at it. Like anything that we're a little bit guilty of, a little bit bad at, you know what we do? We scan the horizon for someone who's obviously bad at it. And then that builds such icky feelings in us when we know that like, for instance, we might've exaggerated a personal story And we know that we did, and we're carrying that. It feels icky. And every time we do it, it builds up and builds up. You got to do something with it, man. And along comes like Brian Williams, the newscaster, who did not falsify a news account years ago. He exaggerated a personal story. And so what do we do? We go, how dare him? And then (laughs) we pile all of our icky stuff that we're a little bit bad at, and we get it thrust it all on him. And what that does is it builds social cohesion because we all agree he's horrible. Yeah, that guy sucks. And then you get to cast him out of the village or kill him. You know, this is scapegoating. And so, so much of it is an inability to have any kind of humility about ourselves. We're terrified of having, of the truth of ourselves because I think we have so much insecurity, internalized self-hatred, and when we have that kind of shame it keeps us from the truth of both how beautiful we are but also how shitty we are it's okay everyone's shitty man we all have these things that that are kind of icky about us everybody and if you have shame you can't make peace with that you think it's the whole so you you ignore it you say it's not there at all and then you search for people who you can blame i mean Sometimes people will be like, why do you tell such horrible stories about yourself? <laughs> like, why do you write stories that are like about these icky things you say or do? And I'm like, because I'm, I'm not ashamed. I mean, like I can feel bad about it and go, that's gross. And it's kind of cringy, but I'm not, I don't carry a bunch of shame, if that makes sense. And if you don't have a lot of shame, you can actually have compassion for people who behave badly, not to exonerate them, not to uh, pretend that the harm they did wasn't It's not what I'm saying, but, um, but when we've forgiven ourselves, we become able to forgive other people. This is that whole forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's, I think what it really is. If we can forgive ourselves, for our ickiness, we are less compelled to crucify people for theirs.
0: Well, uh, spot on and incredible, thank you for that. And uh, the honest question that comes up for me is, it's amazing There's some boldness and bravery for you to to be able to even say the truth so clearly, as you said it. And I think that's what reading uh, the corners and this this piece that you wrote about this was so profound to me because you're not afraid to say what is true. What what do you? The thing is, it's our tribe, right? Not exclusively our tribe, but there's a lot of fear in progressive space and whatever words we want to use for for whatever group we're a part of. Um, But that's where a lot of the scapegoating is happening from that's where a lot of this shame is happening from how do we speak this into our own space when there's that looming fear of being canceled the looming fear of being cast out
1: it's 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 incredible bullying i mean that's the f- this is why bullies get away with so much just because you're like i don't want to say something because i'll be next Nobody wants to be next. But my friend Jacob um, Smith, who's an Episcopal priest in New York, he says, look, we're all three bad days away from being an internet scandal. And most of us are already on day two. Okay. So everyone relax, right? (laughs) Like you don't want to be next. And so do I live in fear of that? Of course. I think at any point, my entire livelihood as a public person could be taken away. It really could. I mean, it's not that hard to get a group of people and say, oh, you know, she did this or she shouldn't do that right. Um, and so there is, it is scary, but the performative cruelty of it can't last, it can't. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that there's enough, that, because I have so many conversations off the books with people who are, who actually say the truth about, oh my God, this is too far. Right? Like this thing that is, that everyone's like, if you don't say this or believe this, then you hate all the oppressed people. you know <laughs> Then you're the problem. And you have to be like, I say it, I believe it. You know, it's, so you're like, you know, and, um, it, but behind closed doors, people are like, God, that lacks subtlety. Why can't we have nuance? Is this okay? Is this good? What good is happening from it? I've seen some of these things unravel where people who um, are wounded will come up, try to attack somebody and then their career and their public platform. And sometimes these people probably need to stop Having public careers, but a lot of times it's not something that was so egregious that, yeah, for sure, it's not Bill Cosby level. You know, it's something that if we believe in redemption, we believe in forgiveness, we believe in mercy, that and human transformation, we should be able to say, hey, there is this possibility. I mean, have you ever seen somebody's public apology and have people go, oh my God, thank you. That's what we were looking for. I'm so grateful. Well, now ask yourself why. Is it just that nobody stumbled upon the right combination of words in the English language to unlock that golden door of people going, oh, thank you. That's what we were looking for. No, it's that you cannot seed the ground because you get something out of your outrage. <laughs> There's a payoff to it. I'm not giving that shit up. And if I said thank you, first of all, I would be giving that up, the dopamine hit of it. Second of all, um, people would come after me for saying that apology was okay. <laughs> like it's, it's madness. I won't participate. I don't participate. If you notice, I don't pile on. I just won't do it. I never know enough about the situation. There's always multiple perspectives to any story I can't take one from somebody I don't even know and go, well, that's the whole truth. You know, it's not, it's so sickening. So I'm hoping that there's, first of all, I do also want to say that thing where there's so many dissenting opinions, but they're all quiet. Like how many conversations you have where you're like, Oh, I can never say this publicly. Historically, historically, When there is an ideology that says it's about something that's good for people and liberation, but it includes having to suppress any kind of dissent around it, and there's punishment for dissent around it, historically, that's not gone well.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've
1: I've yet to see this whole thing happen where it's like so much good and flourishing in the world came out of this. You know, it's,
0: yeah. I think what's so profound about how you articulated this is, and it sounds conservative to say it from a Christian standpoint, but like everything you're articulating about what we're doing is inherent to the gospel story of Jesus. And like, there isn't, it's, there's an antidote in, in the, in the narrative of Jesus of where scapegoating leads us and what grace can do and what redemption and transformation has to offer people. Uh, And it seems like in some sense, this would be such a, is such a profound moment for folks who are claiming to represent this faith to step up and lead by example. And I I think you are doing that, but I think so many, so many of us are too afraid to do what we know our faith is compelling us to do. And I just, I really do.
1: I, I also think that what i see a lot in you know the ex evangelical community is just taking out certain words and replacing them with other words like we don't want to have anything to do with all the coercion and the manipulation and all of the stuff from our past and so we inflict that exact thing in the name of being progressive like it has the same vibe to me and i had the same thing when you know i said i became an activist after i left the church well, you can take the girl out of fundamentalism, but man, taking the fundamentalism out of the girl is a whole different story because all I did was replace it with leftist politics and activism. And so I I alienated members of my family because I thought that was the right thing to do because they weren't right about certain issues. I um, I was like if you're not with us you're against it. There were the people who were ideologically pure about you know justice issues and then there was everyone else and there was this hostility. I mean, I was involved in an armed land rights battle in northern New Mexico okay it got a little intense and it was it was just replacing it and not not realizing that like actually trying to not, be so dualistic in my thinking so us and them um that was the challenge you know it was trying to not see everything as good and bad us and them you're against us you're for us all of that that's much trickier it's leaving leaving like evangelical conservative christianity that's the easy part trying to not just use all of the categories type of categorizational systems that we were given in that is a different so I knew that I had really left, like I had really been free from it. When years later, when somebody who came to House for All Sinners and Saints had just left the Church of Christ and they were still angry, they were very triggered by everything and angry about the Christians on Facebook and angry about this and that. And they said, well, you don't seem like angry about your upbringing anymore. I go, I truly am not. And they said, when did you know you were free from it? And I was like, I knew I was free from it. This is hard. (laughs) When I could look back at my church of Christ upbringing and allow myself to admit the parts that were good. When I could not see it black and white. And I allowed myself to say certain parts were beautiful in doing that no longer felt like a betrayal of the shitty parts that hurt me. Then I knew I was free.
0: Yeah. I feel that so deeply. And would you say that it was just, was time what was necessary? Like what allowed you to get to that healing point?
1: Time, sobriety, therapy. Um, you know, and, and then I think it was grace really that got me to that place because we resist it. We resist it so much. We want to be able to go, no, everything is bad because it hurt me. Everything is bad, you know, because we look and that's self-preservation, man. There is nothing wrong with, I want people to hear me. There's nothing wrong with being in that space. That is, that is self-preservation, but I, I just hope it's part of a healing that keeps going. You know, it, it's not a bad place to be. It's not a great place to stay.
0: It's an exhausting place to have to That's stay. Right. Like it's, That's yeah. Right. yeah. Goodness, well, thank you so much for that. Um, I just want to look real quick to see if we have any comments um, before we land the airplane.
1: An interesting. Uh, Gertrude Stein is joining us, hold on.
0: Awesome.
1: She just woke up and she's looking for mama. There she oh, is. Oh, lovely! Hey, hi, Gertie. This is Gertrude Stein. She Gertrude. is everything. She's very snuggly.
0: I love that. Yeah, That's incredible. <laughs> so we have a very uh, interesting question from Mark um, Bingelson in our comments. He said, uh, "When you pray privately, how do you address how do you address God?" And I kind of want to add to that. Like, how do you envision God? Mm
1: um i still use god for sure i still use that language but what i'm what i'm addressing is so expansive you know it's like it's my source it's where i came from and it's where i will return when i die so it is it is somehow my creator meaning like my source like i came out and my sustainer, like in the sense that there is this, this divine love that we come from there. When we do not have enough compassion, there's enough there for us to draw on. So when I say sustainer, I mean, this like source of grace and compassion and mercy and these things I believe in that doesn't have to be me. My, I have a very cold stony heart. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't have enough, do not have enough, but there is enough. And so I think of this beautiful source of divine love that I originated out of and that I will return to. And that always is a source for me to tap back into and to remember and to beseech. Um,
0: beautiful and i think that's probably one of the most liberating things on the journey of evolving in one's faith and spirituality is being able to continually expand that vision of what what god is and what we're talking about when we're not yeah. thinking um, and i just want to share scott newland uh, in our comments just said nadia you represent honest christianity wouldn't it be great if people could actually tell what was on their minds and so <laughs> and really i feel like i've been to church uh in a really sincere way. Um, I'm so grateful for the authenticity you bring to the spaces um, of writing and speaking and everywhere else that you're able to show up in the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of faith for the rest of us. If you enjoyed today's conversation, would you do me a favor and head over to Apple Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating. And if you really enjoy this content, would you head over to patreoncom slash Brandon Robertson and become a patron today? For as little as $5 a month, you can gain access to behind-the-scenes content from this podcast and from my work all across the internet. Thanks so much in advance for your support of this show, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Faith for the Rest of Us.